In the early 70s, singer-songwriter John Lennon released a song that many consider to be one of the best songs ever written. Rolling Stone magazine ranked it third all time, and it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999. Anybody know the song I'm talking about here? Yeah, that's right. Imagine. Many of us, even those who weren't around when it was released, uh, know of this song, right? I have a a short clip from the song that I want to play play for you. I, I bet you never imagined that you'd be hearing Imagine on Sunday morning, but here it is. Listen to this. singing, some of you swaying back and forth, probably bring back some good memories, right? Listen to the first verse and the chorus while I read them again. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And then the chorus goes, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be one. In this song, Lennon is making the the argument that this world would be a great place if people would just realize that this life is all there is and if they would live accordingly. He, he truly believed that life could be enjoyed if people would just realize that there's nothing but the sky above and the dirt beneath. And many reason in this way today, don't they? In the late 70s, early 80s, Schlitz Beer used to air these cheesy ads on, on TV, but it was their slogan that many remember to this day. Their slogan was this, you only go around once, so go for the gusto. Live it up. Live life to the fullest. Now, let's be honest. That, that, that mentality sounds appealing, doesn't it? It does. It sounds pretty good, right? 
And, and I'll be the first to, to admit to you that if this life is all there is, then that should be our mentality. If this is true, that this life is all there is, we are wasting our time here this morning. If this is all there is, we should be living it up in the here and now. We should drink and be merry because tomorrow we might die and be gone forever. But here's the thing. Scripture teaches we don't just go around once. We go around twice. We go around twice. All of us, every human being who has ever lived has this life to live, which is temporary, and the life to come, which is eternal. Folks, that changes everything. Changes everything. That truth, the truth, that we go around twice changes everything. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we learned last week, in addition to the numerous issues the Corinthian church was having in the first century, when Paul wrote this letter, on top of all those problems they were dealing with morally and relationally, many of the Christians at Corinth were also having problems doctrinally. Imagine that. Now, it should be no surprise to us in here, folks, that, that because one is having issues morally and relationally, it, it should be no surprise to us that they're also having issues doctrinally as well. And that was true in the, of the believers at Corinth. There were certain people in the church who, because of the influence of, of paganism, were questioning the future physical and bodily resurrection of God's people. Though they believed Jesus literally and physically rose from the dead, they believed that resurrection was unrelated to them. They believed that that was a one-time deal. A special occurrence. So Paul writes to them here to address this belief and to show them where they are off track doctrinally. In verses 12 through 34, he explains how Christ's resurrection, though unique, is not a one-time occurrence, but is an event that guarantees future occurrences. He explains to them that the resurrection of Christ guarantees that there will be a future resurrection of all believers. And in this passage, he is going to, to call for his readers to understand the importance of these two events, of Christ's resurrection that has already occurred and of the future resurrection of all believers that will occur. The first way Paul shows the importance of the resurrection is by showing his readers that without it there's no hope without it there's no hope without the resurrection we are without hope in verses 12 through 19 paul is going to argue that if the resurrection has not occurred we are the most miserable human beings who have ever walked the planet we as believers now that hurts for some to hear but it's true Verse 12, Paul sets up his argument by giving a 
summary statement of the major issue of this chapter. He says, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Again, this is the problem that is being dealt with throughout the entire chapter. Though the, the, the Christians at Corinth believed and proclaimed that Christ was raised, they were with the same breath saying there is no resurrection of the godly. Not in a literal, physical, and bodily sense. Paul is saying, how can you say that? If you believe in the one, why don't you believe in the other? So Paul leads with this to show his readers that he clearly disagrees with their doctrine here. And he moves into his argument in verses 13 through 19. And he does something very interesting here. In this passage, Paul shows seven consequences if the resurrection does not occur. Seven consequences that we would be faced with if there was no resurrection. First, Paul begins by talking about our future resurrection. And he says, if there is no future resurrection then there is no past resurrection. Look at verse 13. Paul says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Then skip down to verse 16. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16, he's just repeating what he said in verse 13 for for good measure and, and for emphasis. Now, why does, why does Paul lead with this? Why does, Paul, why does Paul start here with this? Well, it ties back into verse 12, verse 13, and, and verse 16 does. In these two verses, Paul is saying, in these three verses he's saying, if you believe that Christ has been raised, then how can you deny your future resurrection? And in verse 13 he says, look, if there is no future resurrection of believers, then there is no past resurrection of Christ. And he repeats it in verse 16 because this is the key point here. Paul is saying if you as Corinthians, if you follow your belief that there is no resurrection of the godly to its logical end, then you're left with the dead rabbi and not a risen savior. Some of you may be wondering, well, why is one dependent upon the other? Well, Paul's going to answer that later in the passage, but I will say this. We're told time and time again throughout the scriptures that we as believers are in Christ. That means we who are trusting in him have such a connection with him that what is true of him is true of us. For example, he is righteous. Therefore, we who are in him are righteous. He is God's son. Therefore, we who are in him are God's children. He was raised in a literal, physical, and bodily way to live forevermore. Therefore, we who are in him will be raised to be with him in a physical, bodily sense to live forevermore. You see? That's why Paul says, if we deny the resurrection of the godly, then we also have to say, that Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, we have a whole host of problems. And Paul is going to address these here in the verses to follow. So the first point he makes is, if there is no future resurrection, then there is no past resurrection. Second, Paul says, if there is no past resurrection, then our preaching is pointless. 
It's the first point. Our preaching is pointless. In verse 14, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That means what I'm doing before you right now is of no value to anyone if Christ is still in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East. That's Paul's point. When I was in seminary, I was introduced to the teachings of Dr. Marcus Borg. Dr. Borg is the head of the religion and philosophy department at Oregon State University. And he's also a a member of the religious organization known as the Jesus Seminar. You may have seen him or John Dominic Crossan if you ever watch those mysteries of the Bible on A&E. They're often the the so-called experts brought in to, to be interviewed. And Dr. Borg believes and teaches, along with his colleagues, that those who believe in the physical and bodily resurrection of Jesus are misguided. He and his colleagues travel around from state to state and overseas teaching that Jesus is still dead in a physical sense. Now, Dr. Borg believes he's kind of risen in a spiritual sense. He kind of lives on spiritually through his followers. But, but he believes he is not still, he did not physically rise. He's still in a tomb somewhere. Now, he has received every accolade and every award that Oregon State has to offer. He is known around the world and he's respected by scholars everywhere. But here's the problem. If Dr. Borg is right, then he has nothing to say. His teachings about Jesus are useless, according to Paul. Because Paul is clear that if Jesus is not raised, there's no point in even talking about it. Preaching is in vain. Why? Because the Bible makes clear that the gospel itself is built on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. If that's not our message, or if Jesus is not raised, then anything we have to say about him is in vain. Second point Paul makes is, if there is no resurrection of Jesus, our faith is futile. Look at the end of verse 14. Paul says, in your faith is in vain. If you remember in verses 3 through 4 of chapter 15, Paul gives us the gospel in a nutshell. He says, Christ died, he was buried, and he arose. So again, we see here, if the death and resurrection are at the heart of the gospel message, and you take one of those away, you have no gospel. You have no gospel. That's Paul's point in verse 14. If there is no resurrection, we might as well stop believing right now because the heart of what we believe is not true. Fourth point Paul makes in this passage is that if Jesus is not raised, then our testimony is untrue. Look at verse 15. Paul says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul tells his readers, if God did not raise Christ, and we say that he did, then we are saying that God did something that he did not do. Therefore, our testimony is untrue. Folks, if the resurrection did not occur, We need to do away with this book right here. Don't look to it for guidance. Don't follow what it says. 
because the writers who wrote this book look forward to Christ's resurrection and others claim to have seen the risen Christ. So if it did not occur, we need to just put this book aside and never pick it up again. There's a fifth consequence Paul gives, and it's found in verse 17. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, our sins are not forgiven. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now there's a comforting thought for a Sunday morning, right? If Christ did not rise, we are without salvation. Paul says in Romans 4, 25, that Christ was raised for our justification. He was raised so that we could be made right with God. It's through his resurrection that that takes place. Without it, we are still in our sins and things are as they were in Adam. If Christ is dead, we have no perfect priest who stands for us. We have no perfect representative who makes us righteous. If Christ stayed dead, death put the stinger in Christ rather than Christ putting the stinger in death. If He didn't rise, we are still in our sins without a hope in the world. Number six, Christ is still dead. The dead are perishing. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This point is closely connected to the previous point. I believe they're meant to be understood together. Paul is saying, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins awaiting condemnation and the loved ones, your loved ones who have gone before you are currently perishing. You beginning to feel the weight of this? This is heavy. Hopefully you're beginning to understand, if you didn't already, the importance of the, of the resurrection. The seventh and final point is found in verse 19. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then believers are to be pitied. He says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I've heard some say before, even if Christianity is proven false, even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I would still be glad I gave my life to it because, you know, I've lived a moral life and I've, I've been a nice and helpful member of society. If this is a hoax, so be it. I'm okay with it. The Apostle Paul completely disagrees with that kind of mentality. He said, that's crazy. If this is untrue, if we are giving our lives to something that's a sham, we are a miserable and pathetic people. It says later, if this life is all there is, then there is no hope. So why live like there is, if there isn't? If this is all there is, your mentality should be like the Schlitz beer commercial. You should go for the gusto. Live it up. In the here and now, because you may die tomorrow and never return. Paul's mind, that should be our mentality if we only go around once. But scripture teaches we go around twice. And it does matter how we live in this life because of that. But don't let anyone tell you that Christianity would be wonderful if there was no resurrection, because it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. Without it, there's no hope. Not only is there no hope, there's no victory. 
Without a resurrection, there is no victory. Now, in, in the previous eight verses, Paul's been extremely negative, hasn't he? To show how dim our existence would be without the resurrection. Now, in verse 20, he shifts gears from the negative to the positive. At the beginning of verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Here in verse 20, Paul does away with all those what-ifs from the previous passage by saying very definitively, Christ has been raised. And then he adds the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says Christ has been raised. Remember, the Corinthians believed that, right? They did. They just believed that, that his resurrection had no impact on them, which is why Paul adds the phrase, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul's basically saying here, don't say that, that, that Christ's resurrection has no impact. It has a huge impact on all of those who are in him. Now, let's, let's talk for a moment about what Paul means when he says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In the Old Testament, it was required by the Jews before the harvest could be made, before, uh, before you could harvest your whole field and bring the crops in, you had to cut down the first fruits of the harvest to present before the priest so that it could be offered before the Lord as sacrifice to him. So the first fruits is the first crop, the cream of the crop, the best crop given right off the top. It's the very best you have. And the first fruits were also a sign or a symbol of the coming harvest. Paul is using that illustration here to say in a similar way, Christ, the first, the best, the cream of the crop was raised and his resurrection is a sign or a symbol of the coming resurrection of all believers. Now I'm sure many upon hearing Paul's words there were still a bit skeptical. I'm sure that some were, were still doubtful that Christ's person and work would have this kind of impact on every believer. I'm sure many still question whether Christ's death or, or resurrection would guarantee a future physical and bodily resurrection of all believers. And it seems as if Paul anticipates his skepticism here, which is why he follows in verse 21 and 22 by saying, For as by a man came death. Now let's stop there for a minute. Paul gives us a key principle here. Who was the one man whose act brought death on the whole human race? Who was it? Adam. That's right. You remember the story of Adam, right? Remember God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he placed them in a garden paradise, and he said, don't eat from this tree. And Eve said, I think I'll eat from that tree. And Adam said, you did it, I'm going to do it too. And they fell, and the whole pile of us went. Adam was our spiritual father. He was our representative, and he sinned, and like we've said before, not in a literal sense, but in a very real way, we were there with him sinning, and we, we fell right out of favor with God at that very moment. That's what Paul's saying. Now look at the end of verse 21 and into verse 22. This is Paul's main point in this passage. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's the point. 
Paul says, if one man can do one thing and cause death to pass on all men, then why can't another man do another thing and bring life to all men? You see his point? See, Adam stood in a very unique place in human history, but so did Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this as a side note here. This is very important. Many have used these verses to argue that the Bible teaches that everyone will be saved. This is what is known in theology as universalism. And, and, and some use this verse and they say, just like in Adam all die, all, everyone who has ever lived will be saved in Christ. Well, first we know that's not true from the scriptures, right? The Bible doesn't teach that. But we can also use this verse right here to argue against universalism. This passage teaches us that our death and our life depend upon our link with the man. Notice Paul says in Adam and he says in Christ. You see, there has to be a connection to the individual and his work. Paul is saying by natural descent from Adam, we die. And by spiritual descent from Christ, we live. We are naturally descended from Adam by birth and we are spiritually descended from Christ by faith. You got it? It depends on our link with the man. All in Adam die. All in Christ live. If you are not in Christ by faith, you are in Adam by birth. You got it? That's what Paul's saying. And again, Paul says all that to make the point that you can't say the resurrection of Christ has no effect on anybody. It does. In verse 23 and 24, Paul gives the order of events of when this is all going to take place. He says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. So here's the order. The order is the resurrection of Christ that's already occurred. Then the godly will be raised. When? At his second coming. And then the end. And Paul gives this order just to assure his readers once again that, that this is what is to come. This is a done deal. In verse 24, he goes into even further detail of, of how things are going to end up. What's going to come in the end after the resurrection of the godly? Paul says, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. These are some exciting verses here. They really are. There are some exciting verses that Paul gives us of the coming victory of King Jesus that he's going to have over his enemies and that we are going to have in him. Paul says he is going to destroy every authority and every power and he will put all enemies under his feet. In those days, when a king had conquered a neighboring kingdom, the defeated king would be brought forward and would be made to kneel with his face to the floor. And the victorious king would then place his foot on the head of his enemy. And this was a sign of total victory. It's coming a day when Jesus is going to do that. It's coming a day when Jesus is going to defeat every enemy in total victory. He is going to destroy the works of the devil. He is going to defeat all the enemies of God. 
and he is going to deliver the kingdom over to the Father. Now, why does he do that? Why does he hand the kingdom over to the Father? Because the Father has authority over the Son, right? Yeah. And, and, and that doesn't change. You can read verses 27 and 28 of chapter 15 when you go home today, later on this week, and you'll see that authority and submission between the Father and the Son, they never end. They're forever. Now, they're equal in person. They're equally God, but they're different in, in authority. The Father is, is the authority over the Son. Now, look at verse 26. This is key. Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Believers, there's coming a day when not only will the devil and all the enemies of God be destroyed, but there is coming a day when death itself, the great enemy, will be eliminated. We have a few board games in our home that we like to play. One of those we hadn't played in a while, but we used to like to play a lot, is the game of life. Any of you enjoy playing the game of life? Anybody play it? All right, a few of you. It's a fun game, isn't it? For those of y'all not familiar with the game, here's how you play. At the beginning, you get to choose whether or not you're going to take the college or the career path. And then you go through all the various stages of life. You get your first job, you get married, you get a house, you get children, change careers. And at the end of the game, you retire. And whoever retires with the most money, with the most stuff at the end of the game, wins. But this game is missing one key element to life that everyone experiences. What's that? Death. You see, if you just live for this life and this life only, though you may retire in your 50s and have a lot of money and a bunch of toys, in the end, death wins. Death wins. Because when you die, everything you've worked so hard for goes to someone else. Death is the ultimate winner in the game of life. Now let's be honest, that's depressing, isn't it? Getting to sound like Solomon from Ecclesiastes. It's what makes what Paul says in verse 26 so significant. You see, the resurrection is important because it gives us victory in life by giving us victory over death. That's the point Paul's making in verse 26. At the resurrection, Christ removed death's sting. And there is coming a day in the future when we will be raised to live with Him forevermore and death will be abolished for good. That's great news, isn't it? So the resurrection is essential because without it, there would be no victory. Not only is there no victory, number three, Without it, there's no purpose. Without the resurrection, there's no purpose in this life. In this passage, Paul makes in two, two important points here. First, he makes the point, if there is no resurrection, then there is no need for sacrifice. And number two, if there is no resurrection, there is no need for morality. First, he says, if there is no resurrection, no need for sacrifice whatsoever. Look at verses 30 through 32, first part of verse 32. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? 
I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? In these verses, Paul is showing that there is great risk involved in serving the Lord. He shows there's danger, verse 30. There's opposition, verse 32. There's death, verse 31. And and Paul also says in verse 31, my life is on the line daily. For the cause of Christ. So if Christ is not raised, it's all for naught. Now you probably notice I skipped verse 29. It's not by accident. I needed to first explain to you the context of this passage before looking at verse 29. Now before I make a stab at this, let me tell you, this verse is considered by many to be the most challenging verse in all the Bible. I've heard that there are as many as 200 different interpretations of this verse of Scripture. Now, I don't know if there are that many, but I know that there are quite a few because I've looked through several of them, all right? But I'm going to make a stab at this, and you can take it for what it's worth, all right? And again, this is not from my brain. I wouldn't waste your time with that. Uh, This is from a few scholars that I know and respect. It's important whenever we're interpreting a verse of Scripture to let the context weigh in. All right, And the point Paul is making in this passage is that if there is no bodily resurrection, then why should we risk our lives for the cause of Christ? It is in this context that Paul says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, the Mormons believe that this verse teaches one can be baptized on behalf of someone who has already died to gain salvation for that, per, for that particular person. Now, of, of all the explanations for this verse, we know we can reject this one, right? Because it, it, because it contradicts what we know to be true in Scripture. Now, in saying that, let me say this. Though I disagree with the Mormon interpretation, I do believe that, that they are correct linguistically when translating this verse baptized in place of the dead i believe that is a correct translation and with this uh, translation in mind i believe that paul is referring here to second generation believers who have been called out and have been saved and have been baptized and used by god to replace those who have been put to death for their faith i believe the point paul is making in this verse of scripture is if Christ is not raised what's the point of a new crop of believers coming up and doing the same thing and and giving their their lives in sacrifice for him it's not worth it if there is no resurrection says at the end of verse 32 if this life is all there is then let's party let's eat and drink and be merry like Dave Matthews For tomorrow we might die and leave this life forever. Dave Matthews is a... Bam, all right, you got it. It was silent. So if there is no resurrection, there there is no need to make sacrifices in this life for the cause of Christ. And also Paul says, if there is no resurrection, there is no need for morality. Look at verse 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 
The Christians at Corinth were living like there was no resurrection. They were keeping company with those who denied the resurrection and were swallowing their lives. And as a result of this doctrinal error, they were also having issues morally and relationally. They were truly living for this life only. They were practicing atheists by the way they were living. That's why Paul goes to great lengths in this chapter to reaffirm the resurrection of Christ and of the godly and why he calls for the Corinthians in these verses to not be deceived, to wake up and to not go on sinning. He's saying to them, if you really believe in the resurrection, then your life ought to be lived in a manner that makes this belief obvious. Because Christ has been raised, you will be raised. Life has meaning, life has purpose, so live like it. Folks, Christianity stands or falls on this issue of the resurrection. I heard a pastor once say it like this, if, a, if the tomb is occupied, then nothing really matters. But if it's unoccupied, if it's empty, Christianity is the only thing that matters. Can't say it better than that. If this didn't happen, we're wasting our time here. My preaching is a sham. There's no hope. There's no victory. There's no purpose in life. If Christ didn't rise, we might as well close the doors to this place and never return. But if it did happen, then everything about Christ is validated. Everything in this Bible is substantiated and everything about what we believe as Christians is authenticated. So the question I have for you this morning is this, do you believe it or not? Did he rise or didn't he? Some will say, well, I'm not going to say he did. I'm not going to say that he didn't. If you fall into this camp, the neutral camp, know that God lumps you in with those who deny the resurrection. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you are against me. There's no room for neutrality here. Did he rise or didn't he? Is he the son of God or isn't he? Are the claims he made about himself true or false? Everything hinges on this event. I encourage you to examine yourself this morning and ask yourself, where am I when it comes to the resurrection Maybe you're here this morning and you believe in the resurrection. Do you realize what that means? Do you realize that means that your sins are paid for? Do you realize that means you are forgiven, period? Do you realize that means you are right with God? That you are restored to God? Do you realize that means that you have been adopted into the family of God? Do you realize that means Jesus is king? And not just king over a, a, over a certain kingdom, but a king of all kingdoms. And he's the king of your life. Do you realize that means you have hope in this world, victory over death, and purpose in your life? Here's the truth. The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. It gives us evidence of his resurrection, and it explains to us the importance of it. The question you have to ask yourself is this, do I believe it? Am I trusting in it? And am I living like it? Let's pray.